If we are going to be about this commission of taking the true gospel of the kingdom to the world, we're going to have to have an accurate story. You can't be bringing your denomination and your belief systems and the gospel about Jesus. You're going to have to have an accurate story of what actually happened and be able to explain it because it's not about a bunch of fairy tales and Jewish saints. It's about knowing the story and anybody who asks you, you not only know the story, but you can point them and then make the connections because when they read their Bibles, they're not going to be able to make the connections and they're going to be saying stuff that is not necessarily accurate like Jesus celebrated and ate the Passover with his disciples. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. Last week in part two of The Last Supper and Passover, we investigated further the conversation, dialogue, and language of the Gospel of Matthew, compared statements made in the Gospel of John to help determine and answer that very important question of whether the Last Supper Yeshua ate with his disciples was the Passover meal. We established a timeline of events that occurred while Yeshua and his disciples were together and discerned what was said and done as they shared their Last Supper together. After Yeshua and his disciples had eaten and done all that had to be done according to prophecy, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane where another prophecy would be fulfilled. Yeshua was deeply troubled about the events that were about to unfold and sought a quiet place in the garden where he would agonize in prayer for three solid hours. Yeshua's disciples, whom he had instructed to watch and pray, after a very long day of teaching, eating, and ministry, were very tired and struggled to stay awake. We will join Yeshua and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane as prophecy is being fulfilled in this teaching, another prophecy fulfilled. So, let's study. As I stated, we're in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 56, dealing with the subject matter, another prophecy fulfilled. And we're going to see, as we go back and forth to different passages, how Messiah is fulfilling the things that was written about him. Everything that was written concerning Messiah will be fulfilled. And then, of course, there are things that that will be fulfilled in his second coming. But here we will see those areas where he's fulfilling in the moment that we're in now in this passage. Last week, in part two of the Last Supper and Passover, we investigated further the conversation, dialogue, and language of the gospel narrative of Matthew. And then we compared statements made in the gospel narrative of John to help determine and answer the question that we dealt with for part one and part two. And that is if Yeshua ate the Passover meal with his disciples, we established a timeline of events that occurred while Yeshua and his disciples were together and discern what was said and done as they shared their last supper together. 
After Yeshua and his disciples had eaten and done all that had to be done, according to prophecy, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where another prophecy would be fulfilled. Now, we didn't cover everything that Yeshua said and did during the Last Supper, but we covered a great deal of it. And so those of you who were with us last week, we went through certain PowerPoints, we identified certain verses, but in between those verses were several other things that were spoken of uh, during the time that Messiah shared his Last Supper with his disciples. We looked at about five chapters in the Gospel of John, and few people actually make the connection of what is happening in John chapter 13 and following as being connected to the last supper Yeshua uh, spent with his disciples. We identified that it was not the Passover meal, but it was just that, the last supper Yeshua shared with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion, and we will deal with some of that today. Yeshua was deeply troubled about the events that were about to unfold and sought a quiet place in the garden where he would agonize in prayer for three solid hours. Yeshua's disciples, whom he had instructed to watch and pray after a very long day of teaching, eating, and ministry, was very tired and they struggled to stay awake. What we've been trying to do in these studies is really try to take us into the space and place with the disciples so that we can actually make these connections and see all the things that took place when he was with his disciples. There were many things that he said, especially when he prayed in John chapter 17, where he prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, and then he prayed for everyone who would receive his instructions, his teachings, his message through their teachings. And here we are today still looking at the teachings of Yeshua. And so much of what he talked about and things that he prayed does apply to us. There were certain things that were specific to the disciples, specifically when he said to Peter, Peter, before the cock crows, you will have de denied me three times. That has nothing to do with us, but we can learn lessons from that because Peter, we know, he actually denied Yeshua. Now, what has happened in the past is that there's been so much focus on the fact that Yeshua or Peter denied Yeshua that we overlooked the fact that all of his disciples forsook him. Not only did Judas betray him, but the other 11 forsook him. And we'll look at that in this passage today. So we joined them in the garden with his disciples as a prophecy is being fulfilled. In verse 36, it says, Then cometh Yeshua with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit here yonder while, or sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Now, Gethsemane is mentioned twice in the New Testament, in this particular passage and in Mark. However, the story of the Last Supper and some of the things that took place after that is also recorded in Luke and in John. However, Mark and 
Matthew is the only one who mentions Gethsemane by name. In other passages, it may refer to the Mount of Olives. And this is why this miscellaneous one underneath the definition here, the Greek definition of Gethsemane and oil press under that usage, the name of a place at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Now, any of you who've ever gone to Israel and you've gone up to the Mount of Olives, you know, to get to Gethsemane, you come down the Mount of Olives and then you go into what they call the Garden of Gethsemane. So it is located at the foot of the Mount of Olives. In verse 31 of Luke chapter 22, and I want to jump over there because this is going to give us more insight. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as sweet. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen your brothers. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee. So we see this is going to take place prior to them going into the garden. He says, I tell you, Peter. Well, let me back up. He says, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Now, remember, Yeshua was explaining to them all the things that were going to happen. We go back a few uh, chapters when he made his entry. He explained to them that the Passover was coming when he would be crucified. However, they did not seem to grasp that Yeshua was going to be crucified at the Passover. They continued to have relationship with him as if he was always going to be there. And there are times when we can speak in the present about something that we plan to do in the future. I remember when I was back in Michigan and I would tell the brethren that the day was, would come when the almighty was going to have me leave that he was calling me away. And I knew sometime before we left that that day would come. And so as I began to share with them, it's as if they couldn't grasp that. But then when it happened, now all of a sudden they're shocked. And we gave some illustrations last week, even when it comes down to someone that we know are sick. We know if they're going into hospice, that there's a good chance that they're on their way out. And yet people knowing that their loved one is on their way out are distraught when it actually happened, even though they know, they see it coming. The reality of a matter sometimes is not as easy to deal with as knowing that a matter is going to come to that place. It's, it's like, I could give you illustration after illustration, but Peter is told by Yeshua, he says, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that you know me. Now, these are, these are some harsh and damaging words. That's what we would say when it comes down to Peter. I remember back in the day when I worked at Steelcase in the factory and I would have my Bible. And for a minute there, for a while, I would keep my Bible in my drawer because I wasn't ready to deal with people questioning me about the Bible. It came 
to a point to where I stopped keeping my Bible in my drawer and I kept it in plain view where people could see it because I'd come to a point, you know, when Paul writes in Romans chapter one, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah. You have to understand that for Paul to write, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, he had to overcome the fact that he had persecuted the followers of Messiah. There was a point that Paul rejected this Messiah. He rejected that gospel. And that's where a lot of us were before we came into faith. Now, I know many of you, you were born in the faith. <laughs> and you've been in the faith all your life. You've never departed from the faith. You've always served the Almighty. But that wasn't my case. And being in the world, having some knowledge of the word of God and not living that word of God that I had knowledge of and had been brought up in was me in actuality and in reality denying the knowledge that I had, the knowledge that I'd been given. The result of denying that knowledge is the behavior, my practice, my actions the things I did, the things that I said. Now, if you'd asked me if I believe in God, I would have told you absolutely. If you'd asked me if I believe Jesus Christ was the son of God, I would have said without a doubt. But my behavior, my actions, my lifestyle did not reflect what came out of my mouth from those questions. And so it was my lifestyle and my action that clearly demonstrated that even though I had this knowledge, I had this information, I wasn't living according to it. And therefore I was denying the knowledge of Messiah and thus denying him with my lifestyle, my actions, my behavior. Peter, he says, you're going to deny that you know me. Verse 35, and he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and script and shoes, I lack you anything? And they said nothing. Remember, he sent them out two by two, told them not to take anything and that what they needed, it would be taken care of. And he said, they didn't lack anything. Then he said unto them, but now he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise, his script and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Now, a sword, it was the weapon of the day. Handguns, firing instruments had not yet been invented. I can't help but think if handguns had been the weapon of the day, if those brothers would have been packing. Now, I know because I've been one of those people, you know, if you have faith in the almighty, why would you need a weapon for your protection? And I would say to you, why would Yeshua tell his disciples that if you don't have a sword, go out and buy one, not only go out and buy one, but sell your cloak, sell your garment and go out and buy one. Of course, with that comes responsibility because we're going to see that Peter was packing, but he was quick to the draw. <laughs> this is where you need to be trained, brothers and sisters. If you go pack, you better, you better be trained so that you don't allow people to provoke you and cause you to be quick to the draw because we're going to see how that, how that goes. 
Verse 37, he says, for I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. So Yeshua is saying to them, listen, there's some things that has to be fulfilled. There's some things that is written that must be accomplished. So here he's quoting. Where is he quoting from? Well, we can find this particular phrase statement in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death. When did he do that? He's in the garden doing that. He's going to pray for three solid hours. And one writer depicts that he agonized and prayed. And it was if great drops of blood was falling from his person. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. Now, this is a powerful statement that Isaiah makes and Yeshua quotes from because while Yeshua is in this garden praying, who is he praying for? First of all, he's already prayed for himself, his disciples, and for those who would receive the word. But now he's agonizing. He's agonizing because what he has been sent to accomplish is right there in front of him. He's got to get past this point in order to process, to allow what has been written to actually come to pass. This is one of the reasons why it is so important for you and I to know what our calling is. Because once you know and you embrace what your calling is, you also have to come to the realization that there is great opposition that's going to get in your way to try to prevent you fulfilling what you have been called to. And interestingly enough, just as Yeshua was surrounded by 12 disciples, if we look at the information that has been given to us by the gospel narratives, we get glimpses of the personalities of his disciples, the mindset of his disciples. We've heard about doubt in Thomas. That's a personality that Thomas seemed to display. Thomas doubted things that he heard. But he wasn't the only one who doubted because the Bible tells us throughout the gospel narratives and especially at the end, Yeshua rebuked his disciples because they all doubted certain things he said. There's people around you when you begin to talk to them about the calling that you've been called to and what the Almighty has placed in you, they're going to doubt you. Not only are they going to doubt you, but they're going to say things that let you know they don't believe what you're saying that let you know that they doubt the things that you're speaking. And how do you deal with that when you're surrounded by people who doubt you, who doubt your calling, who doubt what the Almighty has said you will accomplish? They don't understand it. They wasn't there. They didn't hear it. Yeshua knew why he came. And in the midst of knowing why he came, was surrounded by people who couldn't understand or grasp what he had been sent to accomplish. And so he addresses 
these issues with some of them that we get to see, but we also get glimpses that they all had personality traits that hindered them and affected how they saw what was unfolding right in front of them. And so here he is in the garden praying. He had already prayed concerning him, his disciples, and those who would receive the message. But now he's agonizing over what he has been sent to accomplish. But he concluded, everything that's written about me must be accomplished. Everything that's written about me must be accomplished. (laughs) It takes a lot from you and within you to continue to move forward when you have not only opposition from the enemy, but people who yield to the enemy who oppose you and people who say they believe in you and follow you who doubt you. Not only do they doubt you, they say things, they write things to you. They, they speak things like Peter. No, 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 no way. (laughs) You know, that will not happen. Not on my watch or family members who think you got a, a problem. Remember, we looked at Yeshua, his mama and his brothers. They came to get him. The disciple says, hey, your mother and your brother, they're outside. They want to see you, man. (laughs) He said, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Now, that sounds insane. Don't you even recognize your own mama and your own brothers? Who is my mother? Who is my brother? What is he saying? He said, listen, there's a biological connection and there's a supernatural connection. There's a natural connection. There's a supernatural connection. The people in the natural want to keep you in the natural so that they can be connected to you from a natural, even though they may reject the supernatural. Yeshua's disciples, Yeshua's brothers rejected what he had been called to. They thought something was wrong with him. He's lost his mind. He's fallen from grace. He's not following the, the traditional religious path. The rest of us is following. So he's got an issue. He has not only been radicalized, if you would, but now he's radicalizing some others. He's become a cult leader. And you got to understand when those disciples decided to follow him, who in their right mind walk away from a legitimate thriving business? (laughs) Leave their nets. Just just one day this man walks by and they just leave their nets and, and start following him. You got a wife, you got family, and now is look at where they got you. Because the disciples now at this particular point in the ministry, unless you can put yourself in that position and imagine the things that I've just said to you, Just as Yeshua's family had issues and concerns about him, imagine the concerns and issues that the disciples' families had about them. If there's brothers, you you know the story of the prodigal son. 
as it is referred to, it's not called prodigal son in the Bible, but you know the story. One brother decides he's going to leave and go live off his inheritance. Another brother stays at home to do all the business, to do all the work. Now this guy comes back broke and father's glad to see him. And the brothers got a problem with him. I can imagine Peter and James and John is like, you know, we've been following this guy. We've forsaken everything. We've left father. We've left mother. We've left family. We've left business. And look at where it's come to. And and they got some decisions to make. (laughs) Do we follow this man over the cliff or do we go back to what's familiar? Because that's that's the decision that they're going to end up making. In verse 39, and he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. See, Luke says the Mount of Olives, but the place, verse 40, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, what place? Gethsemane. He said unto them, pray that you enter not into temptation. Now, remember, he had spoke to them back in Matthew 6, that when you pray, pray that you are not led into temptation. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from all evil. He's saying pray that you don't enter into temptation. Because see, one, the prayer is, Father, don't lead me into temptation. But then two, pray that you don't enter into temptation because there is temptation that is going to come at you that he ain't leading you to. Temptation simply because you follow the Messiah. You got to resist some temptation. But what are some of the temptations you got to resist? You got to resist backsliding. You got to resist being a hero only and not a doer. You got to resist the things that come at you that try to pull you to the right or pull you to the left. You got to resist the temptation of worldly wealth that will pull you and have you pursuing wealth, money, stuff. If you're a male, you got to resist the temptation of women who are trying to come at you. If you're a female, you got to detect resist the temptation of men who are trying to hook up with you. So we're constantly bombarded and faced with the temptations that are coming at us every single day for some of us. Now imagine, because as I try to put myself in the disciples feet or shoes while being in my own shoes thinking of all the things that I have to deal with because I keep the Sabbath, because I celebrate the feast, because I believe the commandments are for us today, and dealing with all of the stuff around me, I can only imagine some of the thoughts, and the scripture doesn't take us into it. Again, it gives us glimpses, but I can imagine some of the thoughts that the disciples had. Why? Because they're no different than us. No different. When they got to the place, he says, pray you don't enter into temptation. 
So back in Matthew 26, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then said unto them, he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. He says, wait here, tarry, and watch with me. Now think about those that wait here and watch with me. Now he's going to go a little further, but the word here is more appropriately watch after me. Stay here. I'm going to go over there and pray. You stay here and watch after me. This is that word meta with. It says meaning with after behind. So is he saying watch with me because if he's watching with me, that means that we're all watching together. But if he's watching after me while I go over here, it makes more sense. You say, well, brother, what does it say? Well, look at the usage with and after. Now, the first time this word is mentioned in Matthew, it's in Matthew chapter one, verse 12. It says, and after. So the with here, you would never seemingly connect with, with after. You see, because in a, in a lot of other places, it is they went with, which you could say they went after. Or, you know, there's various words that with in the Greek is used as, but in this particular case, it seems to be more appropriate watch after. Yeshua did not take Peter, James, and John to watch with him. Yeshua took Peter, James, and John to watch after him while he prayed a little ways away from them. See, he knows some stuff. Now, it's going to unfold a little bit later, but he knows Judas is coming. And so he's going to go over and pray, and he's trying to warn them, but he didn't already told them, but he recognized they don't get it because their behavior and actions throughout this time is going to show that all that warning, all that communication, all that instruction, when push came to shove or when the rubber met the road or when the stuff hit the fan, (laughs) now all of a sudden they are faced with some decision. And this is one of the reasons why I tell you brothers that I, that I continually go through scenarios within my head because I know and anticipate certain things coming at me. Like there was a time back in the day when I would go traveling. And this is based on things that I've seen and experiences that I have had. Like if I go to a hotel, if I'm, if I'm at a hotel in a different city or in a different um, state, or in a different country, I'm going to do mission. And I'm in a hotel room and there's a knock at the door. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've, I've had individuals and I've, I've told people, don't let anybody within the ministry know where I'm staying. I don't want people to know where I stay. I don't want folks showing up, knocking on my door. Why? Why are you there? You need prayer? Well, I'll be at the service. Do you have some kind of intent? I've been very mindful if I ever am at a hotel and I go, 
and I sit, you know, for breakfast or if I go to have coffee, the idea that someone would send a woman to sit at the table with me with the photographer taking pictures that they can later say, see, you know, when he goes out of town, he's hanging out with these women. We got proof. Now, I got to explain that. Why should I have to explain a setup? But if I'm not aware, because these kinds of things have happened to a lot of folks, some of them, they were caught red-handed. Others have been set up. This is from watching all these spy movies. And again, experiences. Because I have had to explain, you know, folks have lied on me, and now I'm on the the witness stand trying to defend myself from a lie. Why should I have to defend myself from a lie? Because who's ever questioning me about a lie have information that they can believe, but it's false information. And if they believe that information, I got to defend myself against a lie. How do you defend yourself against a lie? So I'm watching all these scenarios. This is why there's certain rules and boundaries that I've set around myself. You see, when I make a statement about not being in a room with a closed door, well, see, you know, Paul writes that the younger women you treat as sisters, the older women you treat as what? Mothers. See, one of the reasons why I don't engage in touching and hugging is because I don't know who's Nida and who's not, but I don't have to worry about that stuff with the, with the mother. So the same rules don't apply. Are you understanding what I'm saying? If you, you treat a younger man as a brother and an older man, how? As a father. See, I don't have to concern myself. See, if I'm dealing with an older man that I'm looking to as a father, I'm expecting a level of wisdom that is most likely not going to come from that younger man. The same with an older woman. This is why Paul says, you older women, you're to teach the younger women. What? How to love your husband? Why, why do they need to be taught how to love their husband? Because they don't know. Now, if, if they've got a mother who has demonstrated that, then they have some insight. But if they've come from a broken home, if they've come from a home where men is in and out, if they've come from a home where they've been unprotected, uncovered, it affects a mentality that when they get into a relationship, all that history that they have come into the relationship with them. If a man has a father who is a rolling stone, wherever he lay his hat is his home. What is he being taught? What do he see? But if he's got a stable father that is at home, taking care of business, watching over his family, providing for us, what do we see? So there's a good chance he's going to learn those things. And then you can learn all those things and go into the world and become somebody totally different than who you're supposed to be. So it's the older women and the older men that is supposed to be that resource, that wisdom, that elder, that stable person that you can speak 
into the life. So I can receive from an aged man, from an aged woman. But when I have somebody who haven't had the experiences coming to me and trying to tell me such and such, <laughs> it's like, you know what? It's a different conversation. It's a totally different conversation. Can't treat everybody as equal. And so I make statements that people try to hold me to, but they don't have the whole story or the whole knowledge or information, you see. So yeah, I'm going to treat that younger woman different than I'm going to treat that older woman. My behavior around her is going to be different. There's going to be certain different parameters. And this is why you young brothers, you need to understand this stuff. Because, I mean, you got a, you got a, a fiancé or a wife, and here you are trying to be nice. And next thing you know, you're trying to be nice becomes something you got to defend yourself against. You better have some boundaries. You better set some parameters because people will make accusations that aren't true and you find yourself on the defending end of something that you can't defend and in the process of trying to defend yourself against something you can't defend, there's a tendency you're going to start looking like you don't know what you're talking about. So you must be lying. You must be covering up. There must be some truth to it. You see. But this is why I go through all of this because I'm going to tell you something. The enemy is trying to keep you from fulfilling what you've been called to. He will orchestrate trauma. He will bring drama. He will send any and every. First of all, he identify your weaknesses. You better know your weaknesses. Know your strengths. Know your weaknesses. Because the enemy, he's going to exploit your weaknesses. And so Yeshua says, watch after me. Watch. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, Matthew 26, 39. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. And this is, this is one of the challenges. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you without a doubt. Can you imagine being a married man and a father is telling you to leave your father's house or your father's land and go to a place that I will show you. And you got a wife who has got different ideas, a wife who may be connected to her family. And now here you come home telling her, God told us to leave. Well, where are we going, honey? Well, I don't know. He's going to show us. Really? If you haven't built a trust if this woman doesn't necessarily see you as that spiritual leader, as the one that she can follow you blindly, not knowing you not knowing where you're going. Father's word in that instance could cause problems. And, you know, depending on that relationship and some say, well, well, he'll never call you to do something like that. Well, we see it throughout the scripture that he calls people to do things that their families are going to have issues with. 
And now Yeshua himself is facing the reality of his calling in a garden. While his disciples who supposed to be watching after him then passed out. <laughs> the cup Yeshua spoke of was figurative, indicating the death he would suffer for the sins of the world. Yeshua had spoken of this cup earlier when James and John's mama requested he have them sit on his right hand and on the left when he came into his kingdom. Now, think about this. If she knew, which is why Yeshua said, you don't know what you're talking about. But from her conversation and based on how they've communicated with her, coupled with what she might believe, she gets the impression that this kingdom that he comes to set up is where? On the in earth. That is going to be an earthly kingdom. And so he said unto her, what will you, what do you want? She said unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Yeshua answered and said, you know not what you ask. Now you don't see this, but the period there lets us know based on the next statement that he's talking to her. So you don't know what you're asking, but then he turns to them. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They say unto him, we are able. Do you see the transition in the conversation? But if you don't pay attention, you won't see that transition. So they're standing right there with her. She's coming and she's putting pressure and it's going to cause indignation with the rest of the disciples. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, if you really get inside this group of 12 and Yeshua, you're going to see so much drama. 12 different personalities and a mama. Mama drama. They said, we're able. And he said unto them, you shall drink indeed. You, you'll drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. Why? Because they're going to be, they're going to be executed. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. He will make that decision. And he cometh, verse 40, back to Matthew 26. He cometh unto the disciples and find them asleep and said unto Peter, what could you not watch after me one hour? And then he tell them, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Now, what did he say earlier? Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Verse 40. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that you enter not into temptation. So they are to watch and pray. They're neither watching <laughs> nor pray. They're asleep. And so he comes and he finds them. He says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what is he saying? See, now you're going to have to deal with the two yous. See, there's the spirit man and the spirit man is ready to do what I'm saying. But then there's the flesh. You know, you done ate. It's been a long day. It's night. It's late at night because, you know, Judas left 
it was already night. Yeshua spent time praying, ministering, and then they left, get into the garden, and it's very late. He said, your, your spirit is willing. It's ready to do the flesh. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, every single day, all day long, we are confronted with these two issues, our spirit and our flesh. This is why if you exercise the use of the knowledge and information of the word and build your spirit man, and then, you know, just practice walking and living according to the word in faith, the more you do that, the stronger your spirit man becomes so that when that flesh tries to rise up, you can recognize it quicker. Now, the flesh is, is unique because the flesh is more knowledgeable of you in the sense of familiarity. You're more as a person because you are the person that has this going on in you, your spirit man and your, and your carnal man, your fleshly man, trying to lead, trying to direct, trying to guide. Not only is your spirit man not exercised to the degree to where you fully trust because the spirit man is going to try to get you to walk in the word. So the level of knowledge and understanding you have of the word, and then you got to convince yourself that standing on the word is going to get you the results. But then the question is, what results are you talking about? What results do you want? Because the flesh man knows your desires. Your flesh, man, is a greater temptation to you than the devil. Why? Because when the enemy comes, when the devil comes, he can't tempt you with anything you can't be tempted with. <laughs> See, your temptation comes from where? The desires of your own heart. You got to deal with the desires of your own heart. And this is where when the word confronts our own desire, we've got to make a decision. And I can tell you that the moment you decide that you're going to walk this walk out, all those desires that you have had that has eluded you all these times, all your life, now show up and be ready to surrender. <laughs> Stuff that you pursued that have eluded you. Things that you've desired and wanted that you just couldn't get a hold of. Now all of a sudden, it's throwing itself at you. <laughs> Ooh, the devil, man, I'm going to tell you, he's a defeated foe. You know who ain't defeated? You. He can't tempt you with anything that is not within you already. 
So you got to deal with the stuff in you and then resist the devil. And what is he going to do? He's going to leave you for a season. He'll be back like the Terminator. I'll be back. And guess he does. He show up from time to time to see if you was as strong as you was. Yes, did he? <laughs> you see, the flesh is weak when it comes to the spirit. The spirit is ready. See, when you are filled with the spirit, it's not a baby spirit. It's not a toddler spirit. You know, it's not an adolescent spirit. It's not a teenage spirit, a young adult spirit. The spirit doesn't go through all those stages you go through. When you are filled with the spirit, you're, you're filled with his mature spirit, and his spirit is always ready to do his will. It don't have to grow. It's full grown. <laughs> He's ready. But the flesh man, this is why we've got to put the flesh to death. And there's always people in your life that wants to resurrect that flesh because there are people who would rather deal with your carnal self than your spirit man because they don't understand you spiritually. The carnal man do not understand spiritual things. And so if you operate in the spirit, if you walk by the Spirit, if you speak by the Spirit, there is no carnal person who can truly relate to where you are and how you're walking. So all they could do is try to break you down, demonize you, undermine you, attack that. Why? Because they want you back. <laughs> See, they can manipulate you but they can't manipulate your spirit, man. They can get in your head, but they can't get in the spirit's head. They can come at you and tempt you and, you know, try to draw you back. And if your flesh is not dealt with, you'll be going back and forth, tossed to and fro. The flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Now, understand something, brothers and sisters. There was no cup in the garden. There was no cup in the garden. Because people want to now take the cups out the garden and bring them into the Passover. They got all these different cups they want to drink from. And then they insert their Judaism into the Last Supper. And next thing you know, you had a Passover Seder dipping your finger in a cup. That's how all that tradition, they just find scripture here, find scripture there, and then throw it all together and look at how Jewish Passover Seders go. And then try to messianicize it. And then get mad at me because I call it out. That's the traditions of men. Following the traditions of men. The next thing you know, once you open the doors to tradition, it's like a tra traditions abound. Traditions abound. He went away again. And he came and found them 
asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. They were tired. It's been a long day, brothers. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and said unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is, is betrayed, not is about to be betrayed. The Son of... See, the moment Judas made the agreement with the religious leaders, the betrayal had already happened. Now it has to be executed. It has to come to pass. He's been betrayed into the hands of sinners. Shortly after Judas brought with him a great multitude of people with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Matthew 26, 46 says, Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now we see another weapon, staves, spears, swords. John writes, or wrote, Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, what's interesting here is there's this great multitude. There's a multitude of them. This is like an army. An army coming for one man. At night, they anticipate that these men are going to be armed. So they came, what? Armed. Why would Yeshua's followers be armed? Didn't they have faith? (laughs) See, when you're out there, you're, you're traveling the wilderness, going back and forth. In the day, in the night, there's bands of, of wicked men, they're bandits, they're robbers and thieves. There's all kinds of folks around you. And you got people today, it's like, you know what, listen, you know, believers, believers should, should have faith. I saw somebody who was writing, I thought it was kind of interesting, but, you know, you got these same people who, who will speak or criticize you for having a weapon as lacking faith, turn around telling you, you need to get shots. Where's your faith at now? See, people got faith when they want faith. And I say it's kind of like fake faith because it's, it's just simply word faith. And I'm not talking about the word of faith. I'm talking about using the word faith when it suits them and then justifying it to do what they want to do when it seems to be in opposition. Verse 48, John 20, I mean, Matthew 26. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign saying, whomsoever I shall kiss that same as he hold him fast. Now, when did he give him the sign? Not when they got in the garden. This was a sign that he said, okay, we're going to find him. I know where he's at. This is where he typically hang out. See? And I would have to pull some passages together, but I think you will be reminded whenever Yeshua came up for the feast, 
he would typically, he and his disciples would stay in the Mount of Olives. In the evening, they would go to the Mount of Olives and possibly to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the morning, they would come back to Jerusalem. It was, you know, just a, a stone throw away from, from Jerusalem. So every, every evening, and Judas be with them so he know exactly where they're going to be because why? This is his practice. This is his custom. This is his habit. If you go to the feast, because only one time in the Bible do we see where Yeshua said, and by the way, Yeshua didn't tell them, he said, hey, the Passover is here. Go into the city and find a certain place and go to that person's house. No, the disciples said, where will we celebrate the Passover? Where will we celebrate the Passover? And then Yeshua gives instruction. It's the only time that we see where they, during a feast, actually possibly stayed in somebody's house. Where did they stay all the other feasts? Well, the scripture tells us if we pay attention, he would go to the Garden of Gethsemane or Bethany in the evening, and then in the morning, he would come back to Jerusalem. This is during those seven-day feast periods. And we find this, you know, in John chapter 7, where, you know, when he's coming back, you remember the, the woman caught in adultery? That was one of those instances where, you know, in the evening he would go up, he would go to Gethsemane, and in the morning he would come back and preach, and then go back, because they didn't stay in the temple courts. They stayed in the wooded area. So they got these weapons for, for their own protection or for slaughtering, killing, because, you know, we don't see too many times where Yeshua is eating, but we have to assume that they ate. And I would say that, you know, time to time they ate meat. I don't think they ate fish all the time. They, they might have caught a, a deer here or, or trapped something or, I mean, we don't know. And so they had made a, an agreement that this is a sign. And forthwith, verse 49, he came to Yeshua and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Yeshua said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Yeshua and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Yeshua stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Now, he, he, in the training that I've gone through, you know, we're trained, you know, you don't, if you're going to pull a weapon, be ready to use it. You don't brandish it. You don't just threaten people with it. When you pull it, you be ready to, you be ready to use it. And Peter wasn't joking. Now you say, well, how do you know it's Peter? We're going to show you. Peter wasn't joking. When he pulled that sword, <laughs> he was into it. Now, think about it, because, you know, we can say what we want to say about, about Peter. But Peter had made a statement, said, listen, you know, I'm ready to go wherever, wherever. You know, I'm ready to die with you. I'll go to prison with you, whatever the case. And at this particular moment, now understand there is an army. There is a multitude of folks. They got two, two swords. <laughs> These cats got swords and staves. 
And Peter says, it's old. <laughs> Come on with it. <laughs> he struck off the servant's ear. As mentioned earlier, Yeshua's disciples were armed with two swords, the weapons of that day. According to John's gospel, Peter was the disciple that drew the sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear, who was called Malchus. Verse 8, John chapter 18. Yeshua answered, I've told you that I am he. Now, earlier it says, it's like, you know, who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for Yeshua. It says they fell back. And that's the good. He said, who are you looking for? We're looking for Yeshua. He says, I told you I'm he. If you seek me, let these go. And then it says that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them, which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Now, earlier Yeshua had prophesied in John 6, he says in John 6, 38, for I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up again at the last day. Now, in this particular case, he's talking about us. Anyone who believes, he says, all that he has given me, I should lose nothing. And then in verse 40, it goes on, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, everyone who seeth the Son, now, we haven't seen, well, some of us haven't seen him, and put it that way, but we believe in him. We believe in him and believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So you see, either he's repeating himself or he's talking about two different groups. The first group, I believe it's us, has sent me that all of which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the, again at the last day. And this is the will of him which sent me, which he repeats, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So we're included in that with Peter in this particular case, as Yeshua stated. Remember, Yeshua prayed for all who would believe in him through their words in John chapter 17. He prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples. And in John chapter 17, he said, neither I pray for these alone, but for them also who shall believe on me through their word. So he's continuing to reiterate things that he's said. They should get it. However, verse 10, John chapter 18, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant. So we see here, Simon Peter having a sword drew it. So he had one of the two swords, unless they had bought swords, additional swords. But here he says, having a sword drew it. No, he told him that was enough earlier. He says, we got two. And he will say, well, that's enough. Having a sword drew it and smote the high priest servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Yeshua unto Peter, put up thy sword unto the sheath, into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? I mean, for this purpose have I come. It's here. He spent that time in prayer. He's come to the conclusion, not my will, but his, his will be done. And now it's time. Verse 52, Matthew 26. Then said Yeshua unto him, put again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. 
Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? How then shall what? The scriptures be fulfilled. That thus it must be. In that same hour said Yeshua to the multitudes, are you come out as against a thief? Now the way they came is like he's some kind of criminal. And they've come to take him by force. To take him and arrest him. He says, what do you, you think you came out against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you in the temple and you laid no hold on me. I was with you all this time. See, now understand they'd already decided that they're going to take him, but not at the feast. Lest the people rise up. So they come and take him before the feast. You make that connection? But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, period. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Who? All. Now, scriptures of the prophet is a reference to more than one. Here's what the prophet Isaiah prophesied, and Yeshua is in the midst of this. The prophet Isaiah prophesied in verse 6, chapter 53. Because remember, Yeshua, they're going to forsake him. They forsook him. They scattered. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of, his, of us all. Now, now, people try to bring that into modern day. All we like sheep are going astray. This doesn't apply to me. It doesn't even apply to the world. It applied to them who knew the shepherd and who went astray from the shepherd. And then it specifically applies to those who knew Yeshua and who scattered. Because the other prophet is going to say, smite the sheep, the shepherd, and what's, who's going to scatter? The sheep, which Yeshua said, smite the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So this is specifically being directed. Now we can find some application. He, Yeshua, was oppressed, and he, Yeshua, was afflicted, yet he, Yeshua, opened not his mouth. He, Yeshua, is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Not that he was dumb, he just didn't resist them. He didn't open his mouth. You know, imagine somebody trying to come get you, <laughs> and you ain't committing no crime. I mean, you see all this stuff on Facebook. You see all these videos they post out there about people in, interacting with the police and the police not showing justice and all these folks who are being shot and, you know, dealt with and somehow mysteriously die in the custody, resisting arrest. The average person who believed that they're being arrested falsely is going to resist. Yeshua was arrested falsely. He not only did not resist, but he handed him, it's like this here. You, I'm the one you're looking for. Let these men go. So he wasn't dumb as far as sheep, you know, 
but he did not open his mouth to resist those who came to take him. He didn't open his mouth. He was taken from prison. This is going to be later. And from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? Now he's speaking. Who's going to declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Somebody need to tell the world. Who's going to declare it? Who's going to declare what happened? And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of Jehovah shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. This is a reference to Zechariah. Zechariah says in chapter 13, verse seven, awake, O sword (laughs) against my shepherd. Remember, they came out with swords and staves. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, said Jehovah of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And so they all fled. They left. They took off. Now, Peter, the only one who follows from a distance. Where are the rest of them? Where'd they go? You see, Yeshua identified the leader. And then he says, now, when you restore Peter, restore your brethren. What is he saying? Y'all going to all leave me. But he he knows it's like, because he says, you're going to follow. Now, he didn't say that. But here's what he said. Before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. And those three times that, you sh- that Peter is going to deny Yeshua, where is he? He's in proximity of where Yeshua is, meaning he followed from a distance. But where's the rest of them? So now, after he denies him, he's going to go and weep bitterly. And then he's going to find them and he's going to restore them. And now Peter's job is to hold the band together so that by the time we get to Acts chapter number one, Peter is standing up in the midst of them with the band back together. And now they're going to replace Judas. And so you can see how all of these dots can be connected where as a student of scripture, it's important so that not only Do you know for yourself? But then you can help teach others. Why? Because if we are going to be about this commission of taking the true gospel of the kingdom to the world, we're going to have to have an accurate story. 
You can't be bringing your denomination and your belief systems and the gospel about Jesus. You're going to have to have an accurate story of what actually happened and be able to explain it because it's not about a bunch of fairy tales and Jewish sayings. It's about knowing the story and anybody who asks you, you not only know the story, but you can point them and then make the connections because when they read their Bibles, they're not going to be able to make the connections and they're going to be saying stuff that is not necessarily accurate like Jesus celebrated and ate the Passover with his disciples. And they're going to say a whole lot of other things. And they're not necessarily because people kind of read chronologically and therefore they don't necessarily properly connect the dots. Many of them get so frustrated with the disconnection of it all that they come to the conclusion they can't understand it. When they come to that conclusion, they are now at the mercy of preachers, many of whom don't know what they're talking about. They don't have an accurate description of what happened, they have what they've been taught. And then they want to question you, well, what difference does it make for you to know that stuff? It's like, you know what makes a difference? So that I can be a true witness and not a false one. I'm to bear witness to what Yeshua said and did. And the more accurate I have or the more information that is accurate, then now I can paint the picture right there in front of you and you'll see, oh, oh, okay, now that makes sense. Now I see it, now I got it. Why couldn't they have it, get it and see it before you? It's not like you're the first person that's explaining this but you may be the first person that they run across that has an accurate description of what actually happened and you can bear witness to that truth. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints. <laughs>